good morning, everyone. If you want to find your way to your seats. I was reminded this week of one of the reasons that we come together to worship together, that we don't stay in our home, that we don't just have individual or family time with the Lord, but why we come together to worship Him as a congregation, right? And there's this interesting language in Ephesians that says, it's really a command, Paul says that we need to encourage one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that one of the ways that we encourage one another as, a, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, is by coming together and meeting together, and just by hearing one another doing something as simple as singing, that it's encouraging to one another that way. We hear each other sing praises to God, or hear each other confess our sins, or whatever it is, that that's a means by which we're encouraged together as a church in our faith and our growth in the Lord. So just a good thing this morning to remember as we sing and, and go through the, all of this together. So if you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with our call to worship. And as I've said many times, this isn't me calling you to worship, um, but it's God calling us to worship through his word. So this is taken from Psalm 62. I'll read the bold section of you. Follow along after me. For the Lord alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Amen. If you want to turn to the handout in your bulletin, we'll sing Rock of Ages.
Psalms, the Psalm of, of David. Um, and David is the guy in the Old Testament who's kind of propped up as like the hero. You know, he's the, um, you know, he's the king. Uh, he slayed the giant, you know. Um, he's this guy that we should all seek to be like. But, but David actually, like the rest of us, was like deeply flawed. And so uh, this is one of actually many passages in Psalms where we see David repenting before the Lord. And, and, and David is actually called a man after God's own heart, even though his iniquity was great because of his um, ability to confess before the Lord like this. And so let's look at Psalm 32.5. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Pray this prayer of confession with me. It says, Heavenly Father, you alone are God, the rock of ages and the rock of our salvation. Yet we are prone to wander, prone to follow after our own desires, after the things of this earth. And in our sin, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Help us to remember that we are helpless without your grace and that no labor of our hands can fulfill the demands of the law. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, who dies so that we might live, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to fly the fountain that we may be washed. Amen. You would turn to your hand out, or we will sing in Christ alone. of love. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work from the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do? What must <clears throat> what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come to you this morning just so thankful for your... Uh, pardoning that you've given us, God, if we, if we look to you as the bread of life and we put our faith in you that, that you have granted us eternal life and will raise us up on the last day. And we are so thankful for that, uh, that it's not about what we do, but it's about what you have already done for us. And so um, this morning I want to pray for Faith Lutheran Church. Um, they uh, 
our dear brothers and sisters to us who have helped us out in many ways. Um, they gave us our hymnals. They gave us our Bibles. Um, and so we are so thankful for that, Lord. And I just pray that you would, uh, that you would give their congregation endurance um, just to, to study your word and to dig deep in that. Um, and that um, that word would have a, an impact on their souls, Lord, and, and, and make them reflect your glory and become more like you, God. And um, I just pray for uh, Faith Lutheran Church and, and their relationship with you, that it would grow in intimacy, that, that they would grow together with one another as they grow, grow closer to you, God. Um, and so, Lord, we're just so thankful to be here this morning um, on a day of rest to worship you. And I just pray that um, as Pastor Kendall comes up, that, that you would, uh, that your spirit would be here, that you would guide him this morning. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. Um, so our confession of, of faith this morning is from the Orthodox Catechism. And uh, it asks the question, what is true faith? If you guys will read with me the, the answer here. True faith is not only the knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only ours, but ours too, have had my sins forgiven have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Amen. You can be seated. This morning, if you want to open up your Bibles to John chapter 2, we'll be finishing John chapter 2 this morning. And for some of you, this whole idea of going verse by verse through books of the Bible might be a new thing, it might be something that you haven't seen before, or maybe it is, but you've noticed that we've been doing that, that we've been going through John verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it's important, you know, it's not the only way that you can go through the Word, you know, you can do topical things, you can talk about different topics, but I think that going verse by verse through the Scriptures does a couple things. Like we read in the book of Hebrews, the Word of God is powerful, right? It, it gives us the gospel, it gives us what Christ has done, and it's like a double-edged sword that can cut us, that can cut through bone, can cut through marrow, that it, that it pierces right to the heart of who we are, our motivations, our desires, and that as we go through the scriptures and as you read through the Bible verse by verse, that you often come to passages that are more difficult than other ones ones that are more difficult to either understand or to accept or to come to grips with. And so one of the benefits of going verse by verse through books of the Bible is that we understand the whole counsel of God. You know, it can be easy to pick and choose parts that we like, but it's actually a grace of God that he's given us his word and that as we go through it, we see the whole counsel of God. We see all that he's revealed to us and that as we read in John's Gospel, that everything that he writes in his Gospel is so that we might believe, right? So that we might see Christ, believe in him, and have life everlasting. And so, as we come to this passage this morning, keeping all that in mind, hopefully these things will make sense. And so as we've seen in John chapter 2, 
Jesus has just performed two miracles, two signs, as John calls them. And there's sort of this building anticipation, right? He's performed this first sign, he's turned water into wine, he's cleansed the temple, and it seems like things are going really well, right? It seems like things are positive, right? Jesus is revealing his glory, he's doing these signs, his disciples are believing on him. And then John puts in these three verses right before the end of chapter 2. And it should be a little bit unsettling what we read here. It should cause us to pause and think. And so hopefully as we go through the, the text this morning, we'll see maybe why it's a little bit unsettling, but ultimately how it points us to the truth, true saving faith. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll begin in verse 23. I'll pray for us and then we'll, we'll look at this passage. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when, he, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of scripture that you've given it to us for our benefit. And while there might be things that are difficult to understand, things that unsettle us, things that cut us, Lord, we pray this morning that your gospel would be the balm that heals us, that, that, um, is comforting to us, and that this morning, as we look at the difference between true faith and false temporary faith, that we would see the glory of Christ and his ability to save sinners, and that by seeing what Jesus has done, that we might be changed, that we might be brought to worship, and that we might, at the end of all things, say, it is only because of Christ that I have any hope of salvation that Jesus and him alone would be the ground of our salvation. And we pray for eyes to see this this morning, that by your spirit you would open our eyes to see and believe and trust that Christ is the only way of salvation. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So, so far in John's Gospel, we've seen these two signs, right? John has seven signs throughout the book of John that he records for us. Seven signs, and we've seen two of those. The first one was the turning of water into wine. And we talked about that a little bit, how um, there's a many things pictured in that, right? Jesus fills up these jars of the law, this water of the law, and then turns it into wine, foreshadowing his death and his fulfilling of the whole law, and that by the blood of his cross, he would make a new way of purification, that it wouldn't be through the ceremonial acts of the law that need to be repeated every, every day, every week, every month, but that he would come and make full satisfaction, not only for the law, but for our sins. And then we talk about the second sign that Jesus did, which is the cleansing of the temple, that he sees this wrong worship that's happening in the house of God. And he comes and he throws the tables over and he pours out the money. 
And ultimately, by the end of it, we see that he is going to be coming as the new temple, the new place where God's presence dwelt, that it's not going to be about a physical building in a physical place, you know, thousands of miles away from here, but that Christ himself is coming as the true temple, that he is going to be where God's presence dwells. And if you noticed, in the last two signs, you can see in verse 11 of John chapter 2, and also in verse 22, that there's this pattern that John sets up, right? Jesus performs a sign, his disciples see his sign, and they believe. We see that in verse 11. They see the sign that Jesus performed, and they believe. Same thing happens in verse 22. Jesus cleanses the temple, he performs a sign. The disciples see the sign that Jesus performed, and they believe. And so John's setting up this pattern. See the sign, and believe. And so we are kind of expecting a repetition here. And when we come to our passage this morning, we actually see that. We see this third instance, that these people, in verse 23 that they see the sign that Jesus performed, and they believe. But there's something different about this belief. There's something different about this instance. That, as I said, should be slightly unnerving what's said after this. That even though these people believed, that it says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That Jesus didn't commit himself to them that this should cause us to pause in a lot of ways, right? If we're honest with ourselves, right? If we think about who is Jesus, one of the first things we think of is Jesus came to seek and save the lost, right? He came to save sinners. He's the good shepherd. He leaves the 99 to find the one, right? He should be welcoming these people with open arms. They believed in him. They saw the signs that he did. Why does he not entrust himself to them? We can say to ourselves this, doesn't make sense. And verses like this that we've read this morning have caused people to leave the faith, to deny the scriptures, to say either that this is a contradiction with what we just said, or that there's a problem with Jesus, right? That there's a problem here, that maybe Jesus doesn't understand the full picture, or maybe he's just upset or moody or whatever it is, that this has caused people to leave the faith, or say things like, some savior that Jesus is People are believing in him, and he doesn't even trust them. He doesn't even believe in them. He doesn't even commit himself to them. And so they say, ultimately, that there must be a problem with Jesus. That the problem's with Jesus. But hopefully, as we go through this text this morning, we'll see that the problem is in no way with Jesus. That the problem is with man. That Jesus is the perfect Son of God that came, yes, to seek and save sinners, but... The problem this morning is not with Jesus, that it's with man. And then we'll also see that there's a type of belief that is not saving belief. There's a type of believing in that is not true believing. That there's a belief that focuses on the signs of Jesus rather than the person of Jesus. One that's focused on the external, miraculous things that Jesus did. The earthly benefits that Jesus can give. The earthly blessings. Or the ways that Jesus can benefit them externally. And it's not focused on the glory of who Jesus is. In his person and in his work. And so hopefully by the end of today we'll see that true saving faith is different. 
that no matter if it's weak or if it's strong, that it's different and that it's founded on the saving work of Christ alone. It's not founded on these external benefits or these miraculous signs or these earthly blessings, but it's founded on Christ alone. So we'll see that as we go through our text. So if you want to look with me at verse 23, John says that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, so this connects us back to verse 13. If we remember, when he cleanses the temple, he comes there during Passover. That he came and he performed these signs. So we saw the, the turning of water into wine, and we saw the cleansing of the temple. And as we said, during Passover, there would have been hundreds of thousands of people gathered. There would have been many people there, and many people would have seen what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple. So it's easy for us to see why many people would know about what Jesus did, whether it was one of the servants at the wedding that's telling his friends, I filled up this jar of water, and it came out wine. <laughs> you know, so people would have heard about it that way. Or maybe people were at the temple when he was flipping over tables, and they said, Jesus said he's going to tear down the temple and raise it in three days. I mean, this would have gotten people's attention. People would have been hearing about this, what Jesus was doing, these signs that he was performing. It's not hard to imagine that. But in verse 23b, we see that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. That many believed, so they saw or they heard about the signs that Jesus was doing, and they believed in his name, but as, as easy as it for it, as easy as it, <laughs> it's easy for us to just want to go to the next passage, right? Look, they believed in him, they saw the signs, okay, let's go to Nicodemus, right? Let's just keep moving. But John doesn't let us do that. He gives us a peek behind the curtain. He doesn't let us just go on to the next thing. He says there's something different happening here. That we can confess that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. That John here is inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are not just John's personal thoughts, but that he is revealing to us what's really going on. He's showing us behind the curtain that there's something different happening. And we see that in verse 24. In verse 24, it says this, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. That Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That these people are seeing the signs that Jesus is performing. They're believing in his name. But Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. And as I said, this should cause us to pause. This should cause us to be a little bit unsettled. That it's almost as if John here is saying, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. The same Greek word is used in verse 23 and in verse 24. It's just translated differently. But it's almost as if it's saying, he didn't commit himself to them. He didn't entrust himself to them. And so we're left asking why. Why did Jesus not entrust himself to them? Why did he not welcome them with open arms and say, come, be my sheep, come, follow me? Why did he not entrust himself to these people? And we get the answer at the end of verse 24. It says, because he knew all people. That he knew all people. That the problem is not in Jesus. 
It's not a lack of knowledge on Jesus' part. It's not anything that's wrong with Jesus. That the problem is with these people. It's with them. That Jesus knows what's really going on. As we've talked about this morning, that God created man in his own image. He made them perfect. Adam and Eve in the garden, they were created in perfect communion with God. They knew God rightly. They worshipped him rightly. They knew God. And there was no sin, there was no separation. They knew God, they worshipped Him, and they were in perfect communion with Him. But because of the fall into sin in the garden, that man's nature is corrupted. That instead of worshipping God, that we worship creation. We worship created things. We worship, you know, in the Old Testament there was a lot of idols. And so we, it's easy for us to say, oh, that's silly. We don't worship idols anymore. But as one theologian said, our hearts are idol factories. That we don't necessarily need to make a physical idol. That we make idols all the time with our jobs, our families, our comfort, whatever it is. And we can move one idol away. We can get rid of one idol and our, our hearts just make other idols of anything that our heart desires. It's easy for us to worship and serve creation rather than the Creator. And as we see in the Scriptures that this idolatry is so sneaky that sometimes it even looks like the real thing. We can even trick ourselves to thinking that we're worshiping God when really we're worshiping something that we've created, a God in our own image. And one of the best examples of this in the Old Testament is the golden calf. Many of us are familiar with this story in the Old Testament, right? God led the people out of Egypt. He led them out of slavery. He performed great signs and wonders through Moses. He split the sea open. He drowned the Egyptians in the, ocean, you know, in the Red Sea. He leads the people to the Promised Land. He does all these wonderful things. Moses goes up on a mountain to receive the law of God. And the people become impatient. And they make a golden calf. They bring all their gold together and they form it into an image. And most people are familiar with this story, right? We've heard this story either in Sunday school or you just read through the Exodus chapter 32. But we miss one crucial detail. That as they're worshipping this golden calf, they worship it as Yahweh, as God. They say, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. That they make this golden calf... And they say that that's Yahweh. This is the God that led us out of Egypt. And if you were to ask them in that moment, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Yahweh? They would say, yes, of course. He's right over there. He's a golden calf. That they've made a God in their own image. One that they liked. One that was shiny and pretty. That did the things that they wanted. But they were not worshipping the true God. That had actually saved them out of Egypt. And we lived in Utah for a couple of years, and there were Mormons there. And they would come to your door, and they would knock on your door, and they would say, you know, have you heard about the gospel? Have you heard about Jesus? And you would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they would say, yeah, we are too. We believe in God. We believe in Jesus. And you ask them, who is Jesus? And they would say, well, he's a created being. He's a God that was made into a God, and you can become a God one day too. And Satan is his brother, right? So they say they believe in Jesus, but it's a totally different Jesus. It's a totally different God than the Christian Orthodox God. And so, 
It's easy for us to point the finger, right, at the Israelites in with the golden cat. It's easy for us to point at, you know, a false religion. But how often do we do that in our own hearts? That we make a God in our own image. We make a God that looks a lot like us. It looks a lot like our desires, our comforts, the things that we want. Our political views, our views of the world, our health, our wealth. Suddenly this God that we've invented looks a lot like what we want him to look like and not what he truly is. And so, as we go through John's Gospel, we're going to see things like this frequently. One's belief that is focused on the external, that's created in man's image. One that's focused on the miraculous things that Jesus does. One that's focused on the earthly blessings that Jesus gives, and not the glory of Christ. Not who he really is, not his saving work, not what he's come to do. That if you just look in the next paragraph, we see an example of this. In John chapter 3, we come to Nicodemus. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That he's acknowledging these great and amazing things about Jesus. That he's come from God. That he can do many signs and wonders. And that he is empowered and sent from God. But what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, great job, Nicodemus. There's nothing I can offer you. He doesn't encourage him. He doesn't... What does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That Jesus gets right to the heart of it. That it's not about all these external things. That it's about being born again. We see this again in John chapter 6. Jesus has fed the 5,000, as we read this morning. In John chapter 6, he's fed the 5,000. He's given them physical bread. He's multiplied a couple loaves into feeding thousands. A serious miracle. And what happens at the end? He says that you're following me because you had your fill of loaves. That you are following me not because you saw my glory, not because you believed in me, but because you had your belly filled. Because you saw the many things that I could do, you saw how it could benefit you, and you weren't believing in me for the salvation that I brought. And he comes on to say that I am the bread of life. And finally, we see in John chapter 7 that even his own brothers did not believe in him. That they encouraged him to go into a city to perform many signs and wonders. And John tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. That they wanted to be made popular by Jesus' miraculous wonders. They wanted these external benefits, but they didn't believe in Christ. And so, we can see clearly that there is a belief in Jesus, a belief in the marveling of God's power, and in the mighty works of Jesus that isn't saving that it's focused on the external. It's focused on the things that Jesus can do, the benefits that Jesus can give you, earthly benefits, these signs and wonders, these means of getting something that we want, these ways that Jesus can be useful and not the glory of Christ. That they're more focused on the signs that Jesus performed than Him as Savior. That they've made an idol in their own image and they've not worshipped the true Savior of sinners. So this can be difficult to hear, like I said, if we're honest. If we, you know, if we don't just fly over this,
quickly. It can be difficult to hear words like this, that people believed and Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. And so we can ask things like, we can be honest with ourselves and say, but they believed. What's the deal? They believed. They believed. What does James chapter 2 say? That even the demons believe and shudder. That even the demons have a type of belief. They know God's real. They know he's real. They know he's one. They know he's powerful. But it's not a saving belief. It's not a saving belief. And we might say, well, maybe if Jesus knew more information, maybe he didn't have the whole full story. Maybe he didn't see really what was going on. John doesn't let us think that. In verse 24 and 25, it says he knows all people, that Jesus is God, that nothing's hidden from his sight, that we confess that he's omniscient, that he's all-knowing, that he can't learn something new, that nothing can surprise him. And so we can't say that it's because Jesus didn't know something that he knows what is in man. He doesn't need someone to bear witness about man. He knows what's in man. That he can see the desires and intentions of the human heart. That he can see the desires and intentions of the human heart. And if that is true, then he can see the desires and intentions of our heart. That we can't hide things from God. We can't hide things from him. That he can see our heart, he can see our desires, and that if we're honest with ourselves for a couple minutes, we see that we're pretty messed up, that we're pretty messed up, that our desires are not perfect, that we sin, that we need God's grace, and even if the world can't see it, even if we can't see each other's sin all the time, that God sees it, that he sees it, and our sin is so insidious, that it even masquerades as holiness, right? We can do these external works. We can do holy and righteous things before other people, and yet our hearts can do it out of selfish ambition, out of wanting to get praise from other people, wanting to get glory from man and not from God. And so our pride is so twisted that it turns in on itself, and even in these externally looking good things that we can want to do it for the wrong reasons. That if we take an honest look at ourselves, we see that we're pretty messed up. And so, as one commentator said, the amazing part about this passage is not that Jesus didn't entrust himself to some. The amazing part is that he would entrust himself to anyone. <laughs> that he would entrust himself to anyone. That this is amazing grace. That saved a wretch like me, like you. That he would save any of us. That is amazing grace. That the Father would send the Son, born of a woman, to purchase salvation for God's people. That he would pour out his Spirit on us, and he would open our eyes to see the glory of God, the glory of the Gospel, and that he would save us. That he would send his Son to die on the cross, to suffer the punishment for people that did not deserve it, right? It's not because we are good that God sent his son, it's because God is good. That this is true saving faith. What is it? It's receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. It's not our works, it's not how we can earn our way up to God, it's not the earthly blessings that Jesus has given us, but it's the work of Christ for unworthy sinners. And so, some of us this morning might be saying, this passage is hard. That for some of us, 
Maybe we have a weak conscience. We, you might be saying to me, Kendall, that sounds great, this true saving faith, but I have doubts. I have doubts sometimes. I sin. I sin. I don't always follow God, that my faith is not always strong, that sometimes I'm more focused on what God can give me than who God really is, if I'm honest. And the truth is that's all of us, if we're honest. All of us, at some point, rather than others, we tend to focus on ourselves, on the things that God can give us, and we don't focus, focus on what God has truly done for us in the gospel. That this is true of all of us. That sometimes our faith is weak. Sometimes it's not always strong. Sometimes we doubt who God is and what He's done. And this passage can cause fear to rise up in us. Is my faith true? Is it really genuine? Or is it false faith? Is it false faith that Jesus is not going to trust Him, not going to commit Himself to me? But hopefully we've seen that there's a world of difference between true saving faith and false temporary faith. And our confession makes this clear in chapter 14. It says that there's a the faith that is false and temporary is focused on the things that God can give us, on seeing God as an end, as a means to an end, to get the things that we want, whether it's the miraculous sign or the earthly blessings, health and wealth and all these things. We see God as a means to an end and not as the gift that He is. That is false faith. But we see that true faith, true saving faith, is different. That even though it might be weak, even though it might have doubts, even though it might be assaulted and weakened by trials and tribulation, that ultimately, true faith gets the victory. Why? Why does true faith always win? Because its source is from God, it's a gift from God, and the object of our faith is God. That it's not in our works, it's not in our abilities, it's not in our passion, right? We can sometimes look at our own passion and say, I'm not passionate enough. God must not be saving me right now. He must have hidden his face from me, whatever it is. The truth is that Christ is our object. That he's the source of our faith and the object of our faith. And that true faith doesn't just see Christ as useful, but as one pastor said, as precious. As the whole point of our Christian walk. That God is the gospel. That he is the one that we should look to. We don't come to God to get things from him. We come to God because he saved us. And that he is um, the greatest blessing in the world. And so this should bring us assurance this morning. This should bring us great assurance this morning. That even though our faith might be weak at times. That we might have doubts about our salvation. We might have doubts in our faith. That... Our hope is founded not on how strong our faith is and the intensity of our faith, but on the object of our faith, on the blood and righteousness of Christ alone. And I'm thankful for the songs that we sing because they remind us of these truths. They connect the head to the heart. That as we read this morning, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Nothing in my hand I bring, 
Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Wretched to the fount I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That in Christ alone my hope is found. And that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. That as we read in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me, I will raise up on the last day. That we have a hope that it's not based on us, that we can't lose our salvation because Christ is going to keep us. That no power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck us from his hand till he returns or calls us home here in the power of Christ. We stand. So, at this morning, as we close, may we see this passage, may we pause, may we think about our faith, and may we look to Christ, the object of our faith, knowing that if our faith is in Him, He's the solid rock, that even though the winds and the waves beat against our house, that if we're built on the rock, it will not fall. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for Christ that if we're honest, that often our faith is weak. Often we look a lot like these people. That our faith tends to be in the external things, in the ways that you've blessed us. And we can tend to look at our external circumstances and say, things are not going well. God must not be happy with me. Or whatever we believe, help us this morning to look to Christ, to not look to our earthly, temporary blessings, but look to Christ, not seeking the things, the signs that He can do, but seeking the Savior, who is our rock, our sure and steady hope, our anchor. May we trust in Him this morning, and as we're about to sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like us. May we believe that this morning, and may we look to Christ by faith knowing that He has done it all, it is finished, and we have hope this morning. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. So we come now to the Lord's Supper, and it's a really a continuation of what we've just done, right? The Word's been preached. This is not something totally separate. It's not a different event. It's not a different thing. It's really a means of pointing us back to the sacrifice of Christ. That He has done it, His body was broken, His blood was spilled, and it's meant to lead our faith to the sacrifice of Christ as the only ground of our salvation, right? As the only ground of our salvation. That it's really a means of assurance, as our catechism says, that it's a means of assuring our souls that He has done it, that our body was spared, our blood was spared, His was broken, so that we might be made pure. And so we're reminded each week that this is a meal not for the strong, not for the people that have it all figured out, not who have intense faith, and if you have weak faith, you need to stay seated. No. It's actually the opposite. It's for those that have fears, have doubts, have sin, and they're called to come. Come to the fountain, confessing your sin, knowing that He has purified us by His blood. And so, would you pray with me this morning as we prepare our hearts um, for the Lord's Supper? Lord, we thank you for this meal that you've given us, this means of grace, that is a great benefit 
to our souls, to our bodies, that we eat and drink of Christ by faith, that he was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again, and he will not drink of the cup until we eat and drink with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this morning, as we wrestle with our flesh, as we fight doubts and temptations, may we ultimately look to Christ and look to the new heavens and the new earth where sin will be taken away, where we will be made perfect, and where we will restore communion with God perfectly, that nothing will separate us, and we have a great promise, as we read this morning, that Christ will raise us up on the last day. May our hope and trust be in Him alone this morning. Help us to repent, but also rejoice as we come to the table. In your name we pray. Amen. You want to form a line and come receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll partake together. bread that we break is a remembrance. It's a remembering that Christ's body was broken so that ours might be spared. Would we take it this morning and believe that Christ, the true Passover lamb, his body was broken so that our sin might be forgiven. And we take the cup of wine and we're reminded of Christ's living blood that was spilled that was poured out on the cross, the rock of ages cleft for us that we might be purified, made right before God, not by our works, but by the work of Christ. May we eat and drink, remembering that Christ has forgiven all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand... And turn in your hymnal to song 211. We'll sing Amazing Grace.
were sick like all week last week and you know, the muscles are gone today. Half our church isn't here today. Moody's had to take their daughter to the emergency room this week. Zach and Melissa had to take their daughter to the emergency room, I'm pretty sure as well. Um, but I just want you all to know that it really is encouraging um, just to me to get to worship with you guys and to see all of us every week you know, try to just get together and just, you know, just doing this thing, not this thing, it's worship to God, obviously, but I just want you to know, for me personally, it really is encouraging to me, so nothing special, just, that's all I got to say, I just, it's, it's been very encouraging, so I love you guys, and would you please join with me as we sing the doxology, hymn number 13. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all Here below, pray. 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. The grace and peace of our Lord as you go this morning.